0: In Enchiridion, Chapter 2 Keep in mind that desire presumes you're getting what you want, and that aversion presumes you're avoiding what you don't want, and that not getting what we want makes us unfortunate, while encountering what we don't want makes us miserable. So if among the things contrary to nature, you restrict aversion to those that are up to you, you will experience none of the things you don't want. But if you are averse to sickness or death or poverty, you will be miserable. So move aversion away from everything that is not up to us and transfer it to the things contrary to nature that are up to us. As for desire, give it up completely for the time being. Otherwise, if you desire any of the things that are not up to us, you are bound to be unfortunate, while none of the things up to us, which it would be fine to desire, will be available to you. Confine yourself to motivation and disinclination and apply these attitudes lightly, with reservation and without straining. Enchiridion I focuses on what is up to us and contrasts the tranquil psychological state of those who focus their attention and impulse only on those things and events within their control with the troubled mind of those who attempt to control what is not in their power. This second chapter of Enchiridion further defines the concepts of desire and aversion and adds another important concept, things contrary to nature. Enchiridion 2 opens with the following advice. Keep in mind that desire presumes you're getting what you want and that aversion presumes you're avoiding what you don't want and that not getting what you want makes us unfortunate while encountering what we don't want makes us miserable. Now, we have a few things to unpack in this passage. First is that we should keep in mind the lesson of Enchiridion II. This means that we should memorize it, remember it, and regularly remind ourselves about it. The phrase, keep in mind, is translated from the Greek word memneso, which appears 16 times within 14 different chapters of the Enchiridion. As I noted in the introduction to this series, Arian created the Enchiridion to serve as a handbook that can be kept close at hand or carried in the hand. Arian filled the Enchiridion with reminders that help us keep in mind those Stoic doctrines that are essential to our practice. So, what is so important about the lesson of Enchiridion 2 that warrants keeping it in mind? In short, this lesson defines the key distinction between true freedom and slavery in Epictetus' teaching, which entails Wanting only what is up to us, avoiding only what is contrary to nature, and treating everything else as inconsequential to our goal of developing an excellent moral character and experiencing true well being. To comprehend this lesson's meaning and its application to our daily lives, we must have a solid grasp of several key concepts, including desire, aversion, things contrary to nature, and reservation. When we assent to a value judgment, Attached to an impression of a thing or event that we've deemed either good or bad, we create a desire or aversion that acts upon us in the form of an impulse to either seek or avoid that thing or event. Therefore, desires and aversions are not external entities that tempt us or frighten us. They do not exist out there in the world. They exist as real mental faculties in our psyche, in our soul that we must restrain and ultimately retrain. The first time I read this new translation of Enchiridion II by A. A. Long, his use of the word presumes in this passage struck me as odd. I recalled no other translation using that word, so I checked a few others just to be sure. Pay attention to the language used to describe the activity of desires and aversions in each of these translations. Again, A. A. Long's, Quote, desire presumes you're getting what you want, aversion presumes you're avoiding what you don't want. End quote. The Robin Hard translation quote, desire promises the attaining of what you desire, and aversion the avoiding of what you want to avoid. End quote. Thomas Higginson's translation quote, Desire demands the attainment of that which you are desirous, and aversion demands the avoidance of that to which you are averse. And finally, W.A. Oldfather's translation, quote, The promise of desire is the attainment of desire, but that of aversion is not to fall into what is avoided, End quote. The language being used here is rather curious. It describes desires and aversions as real entities with the ability to make presumptions, promises, and demands. However, according to Stoicism, To act on us in this way, these desires and aversions and the impulses they produce must be real physical faculties in our psyche. And in fact, they are. As Marcus Aurelius notes repeatedly in his meditations, those impulses created by our desires and aversions control us like puppets. Now, we must be careful here lest we misinterpret this language to support a form of dualism where a, a separate mind acts upon our body. That is not the case in Stoic theory. As Christopher Gill, a professor of ancient thought at Exeter University, points out, quote, The normal Stoic standpoint is what we might call psychophysical monism or holism. The psyche is conceived as physical and identified with one of the natural elements, pneuma, a mixture of fire and air. In Stoic theory, desires, aversions, and impulses are not external to our psyche. They are natural emotional states that get corrupted and become dysfunctional passions. This occurs when natural desires and aversions that can benefit us and promote our survival are transformed into passions that pull us around like puppets and leave us with troubled minds. We simply learned to value and fear the wrong things. Simplicius, the 6th century Neoplatonist, wrote the following about this chapter And the concepts of desire and aversion in his famous commentary on the Enchiridion. Quote The promising goal of desire is the attainment of what is desired, and the fortunate are those who attain this. The promising goal of aversion is that you will not encounter what you flee from. And this, i.e., not encountering it, is being of good fortune. Similarly, not attaining the object of your desire is unfortunate because you didn't attain it while encountering the object of your aversion, is ill-fortuned. The contrary of good fortune, because you attained something, but what you attained was bad. Quote. Again, when I first read A. A. Long's new translation of Enchiridion II, I was struck by the word presumes, in reference to desires and aversions. Therefore, after I read those other highly regarded translations, I looked up the definition of the word presume, and here's what I found. The Oxford Online Dictionary defines presume as a verb that means to suppose that something is the case on the basis of probability. My hardbound version of the Oxford English Dictionary defines presume as a verb that means to undertake without adequate authority or permission. Both of these definitions are quite helpful for unpacking this passage. Again, this passage from Enchiridion 2 reads, Desire presumes you're getting what you want, Aversion presumes you're avoiding what you don't want. Using the first definition, a desire or aversion must have some reasonable probability of success, otherwise it is nothing more than a pipe dream or a whimsical fantasy. If we combine this with AA Long's definition of desire, we get something like a strong acquisitive attitude toward what appears good and we have a reasonable probability, a reasonable chance, to obtain like a better-paying job, good health, a good reputation, etc. Likewise, an aversion becomes a strong negative attitude toward that which appears bad, and we have a reasonable chance to avoid, like poverty, sickness, public shame, etc. As we will learn in the episode exploring in 15, it is acceptable to stretch out our hand and take a portion of any preferred indifferent that providence has brought into our lives. However. We become enslaved by those externals when we stretch out our desire for them as things that are good in themselves. The opposite is true of those externals we wish to avoid. Why? The answer to that question involves the second definition from above. Our desires and aversions entail the presumption that there is a good probability we can obtain or avoid the externals we consider either good or bad. However, as the Stoics make quite clear Nature does not grant us the authority or the permission to presume that we can obtain or avoid those externals. They are not up to us. Now this brings us to the next passage of enchiridion 2, which reads, So if among the things contrary to nature, you restrict aversion to those that are up to you, you will experience none of the things you don't want. But if you are averse to sickness or death or poverty, you will be miserable. So move aversion away from everything that is not up to us and transfer it to the things contrary to nature that are up to us. This passage deals with the intersection of two sets of things and events. The first set includes those things and events that are contrary to nature. This refers to things that are typically considered contrary to our human well-being, such as sickness, poverty, social isolation, emotional disturbances, etc., The second set includes only those things that are up to us, which is limited to our sense, desires and aversions, and impulses toward action. Now Epictetus here is advising us that among those things contrary to nature, we should seek to avoid only that which is up to us, our passions, our strong emotions. If we seek to avoid the other things, sickness, poverty, a bad reputation, etc., we will be miserable. As Keith Seddon writes, and this is what we must train ourselves in. We must let everything happen as it will, with an open acceptance, even those things to which we are usually averse, seeking to avoid only those things contrary to nature amongst the things that are in our power. And these are the passions, pathe, the disturbing or violent emotions that constitute our misery. Passions are excessive impulses, contrary to nature, because they are contrary to the correct and natural reasoning, in that any one passion is, or is dependent upon, a false judgment concerning what is good or bad for us. They are excessive because they are disobedient to the choosing reason or an irrational motion of the soul, and they are in our power because it is entirely up to us how we evaluate things and whether we assent to the judgments that sanction those passions. Likewise, in Simplicius' commentary on Enchiridion, we read, If you avoid disease or poverty, since fleeing from them is not completely up to us, you will inevitably be ill-fortuned when you encounter these states. But if you are persuaded by Epictetus, and transfer our aversions to what is contrary to nature among things that are up to us, for instance, avoiding false beliefs about existing things and obstacles to the way of life in accordance with nature and in line with reason, then we will never encounter what we are avoiding. End quote. Now, this brings us to the most challenging part of Incaridian 2, where Epictetus offers some sober advice for the new Stoic practitioner quote, As for desire, give it up completely for the time being. Otherwise, if you desire, any of the things that are not up to us, you are bound to be unfortunate, while none of the things up to us, which it would be fine to desire, will be available to you. Again, Keith Seddon writes the following about this passage. When our desires are frustrated and our aversions incurred, we react with a range of emotions whose occurrence diminishes or entirely undermines any good flow in life that we may have been enjoying or else makes an already unsatisfactory situation even worse. These emotions, anger, frustration, disappointment, fear, or what have you, are what constitute our misfortune and misery. End quote. Therefore Epictetus tells the new Stoic practitioner to give up desiring everything for the time being, because even those things that are up to us and would be fine to desire The good, virtue, will not be available to the new practitioner for a while. Why? Because we cannot seek the good until we understand what is truly good. We cannot follow nature until we adequately grasp our nature as rational human beings and our relationship to cosmic nature. And that understanding takes some time. As Brad Inwood writes, in keeping with his heightened emphasis on the central goal of ethical activity, the pursuit of the good in contrast to merely appropriate actions, Epictetus urges his students to suspend all desire so that eventually their desire might become reasonable. Until the would-be philosopher's conception of the good was correct, and he saw that its attainment was wholly in his own power, one dare not unleash his vehement but natural urge to attain the good. End quote. Therefore, Epictetus is teaching us that we should put all desires aside until we understand the true nature of the good, which is virtue alone, and can discern which indifference are appropriate for the pursuit of that end. Again, this does not entail giving up your job, your family, your house, possessions, to live a cynic life in the street. However, it does imply that a new practitioner must restrain their desires for all externals for a while. We see the same message in several passages of the Discourses. Here's one example. Quote, One who is making progress, having learned from the philosophers that desire has good things for its object, and aversion bad things, and having also learned that serenity and freedom from passion can be achieved only by one who is neither frustrated in his desires nor falls into what he wants to avoid, such a person then has rid himself of desire altogether and put it aside for the present and feels aversion only toward those things that lie within the sphere of choice. Or if he tries to avoid anything that lies outside the sphere of choice, he knows that he'll run into some such things one day, in spite of the aversion he feels for it, and so be unhappy. Discourses 1.4, 1-2 In his commentary on this passage, Christopher Gill writes, This advice reflects the Stoic belief. That only virtue, and not the indifference that are the usual objects of desire, is a proper object of desire. Since most people, including Epictetus's students, do not yet understand fully what virtue is, they should avoid desire for the present, while still aiming at forming a better understanding of what is truly desirable. End quote. Likewise, as independent scholar Robert Dobbin notes in his respected commentary on Discourses, Book One the Stoics taught that desire can be either good or bad depending on its aim. If good or reasonable, it was equivalent to wishing, a good emotion. If bad, it was equivalent to appetite. Epictetus says to refrain, sometimes, from desires altogether, that at a later time you may exercise desire reasonably. This is evidently the reasonable desire of which the Stoa approved. But first, one has to get rid of appetite, bad, irrational desire. And so Epictetus recommends temporarily suspending desire altogether. A special reason for this is that the consequence of frustrated desire is drastic. End quote. Therefore, Epictetus is not teaching the eradication of desire altogether. Instead, he is teaching us that we must restrain all desires until we retrain ourselves to desire virtue alone and to seek only those externals that are appropriate to that end. Thus, in the Discourses, we read, For who is a man in training? One who practices not exercising his desire and practices exercising his aversion only in relation to things that lie within the sphere of choice. Practicing especially hard in matters that are difficult to master. So different people will practice hardest with regard to different things. Discourses 3.12.8 Here we see Epictetus' understanding that different people will face and struggle with desires for different things. It is up to each of us, as individuals, to discern those desires and aversions that control us like puppets. Nevertheless, we cannot remain entirely inactive during this time of restraint. Life goes on. We have classes to attend, jobs that must be performed adequately, family and social responsibilities we must fulfill. Epictetus recognized that fact, and he offers a plan of action for those in the early stages of their Stoic practice. He says, Confine yourself to motivation and disinclination, and apply these attitudes lightly with reservation and without straining. Therefore, according to Epictetus, we can still be motivated to study, go to work, take care of our physical well-being, and attend to our familial and social responsibilities while we are restraining our desires and aversions. How? By attending to them lightly, with reservation, and without straining. In other words, attend to your necessary affairs by seeking but not straining for a particular outcome. Seeking to do well on a test, to close a business deal, to get a promotion, to achieve a social or political goal is fine as long as we do not desire the outcome or fear its opposite. Here we see a distinction between the desires and aversions that lead to disturbing emotions, pathé, and the type of motivation and disinclination that is natural and necessary for daily life. Here's a passage from Seneca's On Tranquility of Mind that highlights this distinction. Quote, I think Democritus was following this principle when he began, Whoever wants to live tranquilly should not do much business, public or private. Surely he was referring to superfluous affairs, for if they are essential, then not just many but countless tasks have to be done both privately and publicly. But when no binding duty summons us, we should check our activities. The man who has a lot of business often gives fortune power over himself it is safest to test it seldom and for the rest always to have it in mind and make himself no promise about it quote, "i shall make a voyage unless something happens" End quote. Quote, "i shall be elected praetor unless something prevents it" End quote. and quote, "my business deal will work out well unless something forestalls it" End quote. this is why we say that nothing ever befalls the wise man against his expectations. We are exempting him, not from the misfortunes of men, but from their mistakes. For him, things turn out not as he wanted, but as he anticipated. Above all, he anticipated that something could oppose his plans. Then, too, the pain of an abandoned desire necessarily falls lightly on the mind when you have not promised yourself a good outcome. End quote. Now, you will notice that Seneca is applying reservation to every one of the examples that he provided in this passage. This reservation, otherwise known as the reserve clause, recognizes that what we seek in the external world is not up to us. Life requires us to be motivated to achieve particular appropriate ends. When we're hungry, thirsty, or cold, we experience the motivation or impulse to seek food, water, shelter, or warm clothing, respectively. Those are natural impulses. The same is true of our impulses to acquire a job, life partner, healthy body, good reputation, etc. However, without our recognition that achieving those things is not completely up to us, we will be frustrated if we do not obtain them. Recall those definitions of the word presume. If we desire a particular thing, we are presuming that there is a high probability of attaining it even though we lack the adequate authority or permission to guarantee such an end. Therefore, desires and aversions motivate us to presume authority over the external world, and we do not have any such authority over nature. Therefore, when we are motivated to achieve a particular goal, we must keep in mind that nature in the form of a providentially ordered cosmos may bring about something entirely different. When we seek such ends with reservation and without straining, we are prepared to accept and love whatever actually comes about. Only then can we stand with Marcus and say to the cosmos Everything suits me that suits your designs, O my universe. Nothing is too early or too late for me that is in your own good time. All is fruit for me that your seasons bring, O nature. All proceeds from you. All subsists in you, and to you all things return. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you will undoubtedly know that I quote this passage from Marcus Aurelius' Meditations 4.23 frequently. I do so because it so beautifully expresses the fundamental Stoic attitude toward external circumstances and highlights the trusting relationship with the cosmos that Stoic practice develops. That attitude and relationship are expressions of true freedom, the type of freedom that was equally accessible to Epictetus, a Roman slave, and Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor. That freedom is still available to everyone today, regardless of life's circumstances. It is available to all who will follow the stoic path of moral excellence toward a state of well-being that does not depend on anything outside of our control. Thank you for listening to the Stoicism on Fire podcast. If you're interested in this ancient practice of Stoicism, you will find plenty of resources at www.traditionalstoicism.com. If you're interested in a social media environment where this form of Stoicism is discussed, please join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on the platform where you listen to this podcast. That tells others this podcast is worth listening to and thereby introduces more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you have feedback or a great podcast idea for me, send me an email at Chris, that's C H R I S, at traditional Stoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue exploring traditional Stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.